Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. I find myself in a slightly strange position on this week's episode in which I am introducing myself as the guest of this episode, joined by Jacobin staff writers Alex Press and Megan Day. Hello to both of you. Hi, Micah. Thank you for letting me uh, be a co-host this week. I'm glad that you're here. Micah is here to promote his piece in the nation. What's your piece in the nation? This is a very awkward thing for me to do. I'm not used to being in this position where I'm the one who gets uh, interviewed about things. Uh, I, I ask the questions around here. Uh, we are here to talk about my piece in the February 22nd, March 1st issue of The Nation, Amid the Wildfires, Mike Davis's Forecast for the Left, which is a broad overview of the socialist writer Mike Davis's life and career. And we should introduce Micah as well. Micah is the deputy editor of Jacobin Magazine. He is also um, the co-author with me of a book called Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. And um, he is the voice of his generation. <laughs> I am I am a voice of my generation, I assume. Uh, you know, one voice among many in the generation. All right, so let's move on to the interview. Thanks, Micah, for coming on. <laughs> Hi, Micah. It's great to be on your podcast talking about your piece. Seriously, it's it's like a pleasure and an honor. Your piece is really good, and I'm excited to dive into it with you. So I want to start out by asking you this, uh, Micah, um, as your frequent collaborator who has a lot of irons in the fire with you and lots of ideas about things that you could be doing with your time at any given moment, I have to ask you why you felt compelled to read 11 books and spend eight months on a magnum opus about the work of Mike Davis. <laughs> well, uh, you read one Mike Davis book and you're like, what the hell is this guy's deal? <laughs> and you like don't really feel, at least I didn't really feel like I totally understood the guy. And then also, the more you learn about him, the more questions that you have about him and his life and the way that he sees the world. Actually, the way that this piece started was that I was just reading a couple of his books and was like, man, somebody should like, since he hasn't written a memoir, his his life is, he's begging, you know, you read just the, these little details that he gives you here and there or that he mentions in interviews, and you're like, this guy needs to write a memoir. So I was like, okay, he's not going to do this. I'd heard from people that he, he had never said he was going to do this. And so I was uh, chatting with a friend of the show, a historian, Gabriel Winant, uh, about uh, like, you know, maybe I should do, you know, pitch a book of interviews to, uh, about him and his life and his work and see if he would be down to do that. Um, and that s- sort of spread through the grapevine and turned into this piece. And then so when, when uh, David Marcus from The Nation asked me to uh, write it, I was like, well, it would probably be a wild experience to just like marinate in Mike Davis for a really long time. And uh, that turned out to be a, a correct hunch of mine. It was kind of a wild experience. Um, yeah, well, I've, I've interacted with Mike Davis a couple of times. I interviewed him for Jacobin once and I was on like a Zoom panel with him another time. And he is very interesting and eccentric 
in some ways figure. Um, I, I find him very intimidating when, when I first interacted with him over Zoom. The first thing he said to me was, I thought you were a socialist. Why, why is your wall? Why is the wall behind you blank? And I was like, excuse me? And he was like, why don't you have like socialist art or posters <laughs> on the wall? <laughs> wow. And I suddenly found myself feeling very ashamed that I hadn't um, done enough decoration in my house to, um, I think he was joking, but he wasn't laughing. Um, so he's so he's a really unusual person. And actually, I I that really comes through in your piece. But there's also probably a lot, lot that you left out in your piece because you couldn't possibly capture the breadth of his life before he became a, a you know left wing intellectual. So can you give us a sense of where Mike Davis comes from? I mean, all of us also cut a much cleaner path to being left wing writers and editors than he did. So where does he come from? How did he get here? Yeah, so Mike Davis grew up uh, in a working class family in Southern California outside of San Diego and Los Angeles at different times in his life. Um, and, you know, that's a rarity in the world of letters, unfortunately, which is mostly peopled by or, or, or a large portion of the people that people that are folks from, you know, elite backgrounds. That's not true of Mike Davis. Um, and he's somebody who. <clears throat> You know, he's a working class kid. He kind of, in some of his, uh, some of the sort of stray bits of biography that you can pick up, like in the intro to his book, Old God's New Enigmas, he talks about uh, having people in his family's orbit who were radicals of various kinds. Uh, and so he had been exposed. You know, I, I mentioned that in the intro to the re-release of uh, Ray Ginger's biography of Eugene Debs, The Bending Cross, Mike, Mike Davis just mentions in passing that he first read the book when he crashed his car doing drunken street racing with his friends uh, in, I believe, the late 50s or early 60s. And his dad gave him a copy of the book. And that's kind of all the information that we get about uh, the radicalization that his that his dad brought him. But uh, how, how did that happen, Mike Davis? How did your dad come to bring you a copy of a Eugene Debs biography when you're in the hospital? I don't know. Yeah, and also, I mean, something that he doesn't, that's, that's mentioned only in passing, but you get glimpses of it here and there that actually street racing, drag racing was a really important part of his upbringing and apparently also of his um, political radicalization in, in some ways, because as he describes it in another essay that I've read, drag racing in the 1950s, in the late 1950s in Southern California was a form of youth rebellion that sort of predated or presaged the youth revolution of the 1960s. It was an entirely sort of working class pastime that was intended to piss off the cops. And it was a multiracial um, pastime as well that brought people together from different high schools all across Southern California, which was sort of um, a precursor to the way that in Southern California, as he writes, as he and John Wiener write in Set the Night on Fire, um, you know, there were walkouts in working class high schools across Southern California and a lot of communication across high schools. Well, the, the street racing was apparently the thing that came before that, which is fascinating, but you'll never find him um, tidying that up for you in his own biography. You just have to like dig through all of the material that he's put out and get glimpses and snippets of it. This is why Mike Davis, if you're listening to this, Please write a memoir. We need it. We need it so bad. Uh, so he got radicalized. You know, it was uh, he's he came of age in the '60s, and so he got swept up in the big fights of the uh, of the '60s, uh, civil rights, students for democratic society, the movement against the Vietnam War, um, and in his uh, early years after he had. Um, been expelled from Reed College, where he went on a full scholarship for uh, 
living with his girlfriend and, and refusing to move out, uh, he was kicked out of Reed College, and that pushed him uh, back home and into the tumult of the era and uh, got involved in SDS, uh, burned his draft card. Um, and again, these, these sort of like tantalizing bits of biographical details about him, like, you know, going through the uh, the campus of the University of Southern California, which is seen as this state and extremely reactionary institution in Southern California, uh, you know, leaving the campus covered in anti-Vietnam War graffiti, uh, you know, being present for a bunch of the big moments of the 60s uh, in, in Los Angeles, uh, and uh, just uh, be, being this sort of like almost like a Zelig-like figure all over the place wherever things are, are popping off in the 60s. Yeah, and you mentioned in the piece that he was the regional organizer for SDS in L.A., and that he also was in the Communist Party briefly. Um, and so why does he leave the Communist Party? And uh, and then, you know, after he leaves, I think a big part of these anecdotes is that he gets this job as a tour bus driver. So can you tell me about this part of his life? Yeah, I mean, all I know is, again, these from what I've been able to pick up here and there, like, I would like to get the full story of how it is that Mike Davis came to join the Communist Party. I mean, one thing that he does say, and that comes out especially in Set the Night on Fire, which we can talk about later if you want, but uh, the Communist Party of Southern California was a very unique uh, chapter of the, of the Communist Party in that era. Um he was open to joining the party despite his critiques of the Soviet Union uh, because of the leadership of Dorothy Healy, who, I mean, I'm sure he could write just a whole book on his relationship with Dorothy Healy, given how he talks about it. Dorothy Healy was uh, a very prominent member uh, of the party, uh, led, led the party in Southern California, was a very prominent communist nationally um, for several decades in sort of mid-century America. Uh, and he he admired the fact that unlike other communist party chapters around the country uh, healy and the southern california uh, cp was willing to denounce the soviet union for its invasion of czechoslovakia in 1968 uh, so bucking the soviet line on uh, uh, the the justness of that uh, invasion. He really appreciated that. And in Set the Night on Fire, there's also a, a full discussion of how the, the CP under Healy there was more open to uh, certain expressions of like black power, for example. Like most of the Communist Party was rejecting that around the country, and, and Healy was was you know refused to do that, which led to some very fruitful relationships, including uh, the relationship with Angela Davis, perhaps the most famous member of the uh, Communist Party in America at that time. So uh, it was a unique. Uh, chapter of the CP uh, that was that led Davis to join it and that that produced all of these very unique uh, things you know you, you get a glimpse of what it could have looked like in other cities around the country if the CP had had the leadership of somebody like Dorothy Healy who was more open to the currents of the time like black power um, but just because he joined it doesn't mean he was ever really willing to toe the party line. And the story that he tells is that he was uh, he was he was summarily uh, dismissed after he was working at the CP's bookstore in Southern California, and he chased the Soviet cultural attaché out of the store uh, because of his critiques of the Soviet Union. Uh, and apparently, that was a line that you uh, can't cross. Yeah, and he also, uh, he's, he has said offhandedly um, 
that Dorothy Healy is the most important political figure, political mentor in his personal life, despite the fact that she kicked him out of not one, but two organizations. I'm not entirely sure what the second one was, but it seems that they had um, a, a, a tense relationship, but also an incredibly fruitful relationship. And I just wanna dwell on that point too, which is that the, the Southern California Communist Party was incredibly unique among communist parties. The fact that Mike Davis and Angela Davis together were members of the Communist Party in Southern California, like no other chapter or branch of the Communist Party around the country would have had that happening. So that was how he got, I guess, pulled from SD into the Communist Party. And apparently it's the case that the Communist Party around the country was sort of hostile to SDS, but Dorothy Healy instead was like, let's actually recruit these young organizers from the SDS. And so that's apparently how that happened. But like Alex asked, what happened next? So yeah, Alex mentioned uh, that he eventually ends up working for the New Left Review. But before that, he returns to working class jobs. He's uh, driving a big rig truck. I think I didn't include this in the piece, but I, I think he writes somewhere that he was like hauling Barbie dolls around Southern California, which is an anecdote that almost seems like too perfect to be true. Like Mike Davis, this sort of like gruff, like kind of tough seeming, you know, working class guy <laughs> hauling around a bunch of Barbies throughout Southern California. Um, and uh, he also worked on a uh, as a tour bus uh, guide, as uh, Alex mentioned. And this got cut from the piece just for space considerations. But like, he has a piece in the Nation from a few years ago where he's just where he remembers like doing a, a bus tour and like he didn't put the the parking brake correctly, you know, in in place or something. And like he walked away from the bus and the bus like rolls out onto the freeway and he has to, you know, it stops traffic on the freeway and he has to go run into the bus and take it off the freeway. Um, the most famous anecdote, uh, and again, this anecdote comes from, as I mentioned in the piece, a, a great profile that anybody who is interested in Davis should read uh, by Adam Schatz in the now defunct magazine Lingua Franca in 1997. It's the most complete sort of biographical sketch that anybody has ever written of, of Davis. And even though it's, uh, you know, over uh, two decades old at this point, uh, it's still very much worth reading if, for nothing else than its entertainment value, um, but also because it has this full, full picture of Davis. Uh, he was working for a tour bus uh, company when there was a strike that broke out, and he was the only one who uh, voted against putting out a hit on the lead strike breaker. <laughs> And uh, he he writes, you know, luckily the hit never happened. Uh, but he, you know, he writes that he was like, okay, this is maybe I don't want to be <laughs> continuing to do this. And it was around that time that he um, decided to actually go finish his undergrad education uh, at UCLA. And one uh, one thing led to another. He's studying Irish history in Scotland, and this leads him. Uh, to the New Left Review, the longtime leftist journal, a journal that's uh, a, a big influence on Jacobin, of course. Uh, and then he started working at the uh, the New Left Review with Perry Anderson. You know this, Micah, that I love talking about these anecdotes about Mike Davis's life. Um, I've actually, one that's mentioned in the piece from his New Left Review years is when he somehow inexplicably has a bunch of... Um, reptiles in the office and he gets very angry uh and in an editorial meeting or something and he spills them on the lush carpeting as uh, that Schatz profile puts it of the new left review offices and you know i will say before 
I mentioned this all because I think we should move on to his actual writing. But I will say I did recently. Alex is saying this just to prepare <laughs> us for when she dumps her like poisonous reptiles during a Jack of an editorial I, meeting. I recently had a friend who was interviewing Davis ask him about this incident because I've never heard him actually address any of the details beyond this. And I've ne- I... Uh, have been dying to know them and he refused to speak about it um, during the interview so maybe next time oh he gave a no comment maybe on next that? time Come I'm on. sure he interrogated my friend about who forced that question on him um, well I will say just that he, he a family member of his commented on Facebook on my Facebook at one point when I relayed these details as I was preparing to write this piece and this family member said that they could confirm that it indeed happened so wow um anyway i bring this up only because it's obligatory that we mention this anecdote in this podcast but also okay so now he's finally doing some research so what does he start writing so he starts writing for uh for the new left review writing and editing for the new left review and his first book prisoners of the american dream comes out in 1986 and Part of what's so interesting about him and his life and his trajectory is, you know, his first book comes out in 86. And what's happening in 1986? This is like the height of Reaganism, right? Like this is this guy who has been uh, radicalized through the 60s, really inspired by the 60s, um, has, you know, was present for a lot of the most important upheavals of the 60s. And But then he picks he picks the 80s. He picks the height of Reaganism to launch this uh, writing career. And so it's like not an easy time to be a socialist in America in 1986 or a socialist writing about America in 1986. Um, but that's what he does in this book, Prisoners of the American Dream, which I first read, I remember somebody gave me a copy of it a decade ago after the Wisconsin uprising and said, hey, read this. And I did. And uh, it's not, it's, it's, it's an amazing book about the sort of the, a, a, you know, a, a, the scope of American working class history. It is not a fun book to read. I mean, it's like a really depressing read. It reflects the age in which it was written, in which the working class movement was on its back heels. It was being decimated by deindustrialization and by union busting. And um, in that book, you get a sense of what Davis's like um, not just political commitments, but like uh, almost like his personal commitment to the reader. He is not going to do what leftist writers, including myself, often have done, uh, which is like, well, yeah, things are bad, but like there's a couple of good things here, here, here happening, and maybe things are going to turn around, you know, with, with these good things. Let's focus on the good things. And you read that book and you're like, no, like you don't leave it with feeling like particularly hopeful for the prospects of the American working class movement. Um, and he says that, you know, the, the, uh, it, it, the smug liberal teleology of U.S. history with its happy endings in a perpetually self-reforming society of affluence scarcely accords with the new politics of inequality and social revanchism that had become dominant since the late 1970s. I mean, he's, he's like not here to offer anybody any false sense of hope. Uh, for where the American working class movement is going. And it's important that this is his first book because socialists are always looking to the organized working class to save us, right? This is the, the social change agent that is uh, we, we, we believe has the power to transform the world. I mean, the, the cause of labor is the hope of the world, right? Um, and so he like does his first book focusing on 
this key social change agent workers and the organized working class and he's not too uh he's not too optimistic about their prospects for actually being able to turn things around anytime soon it's almost like you it's like reading prisoners of the american dream it feels like you are in a vehicle that has gone off a cliff like in Thelma and Louise and like Mike Davis is in the passenger seat and he turns to you and explains to you like what, how we ended up going off this cliff as you're hurtling into the abyss. And that's kind of the same sort of dark ethos that he brings to City of Quartz. But City of Quartz was amazingly like a smash hit. And it's very, it's very strange how that happened. I actually have a theory about why City of Quartz went mainstream. Um, my, my theory is that there was like a strong national interest in, in two things at the same time. And he happened to touch, to like touch a cultural nerve. The first is um, there was a, there's a lot of interest in the time and at the time in LA gang culture. So like, if you remember Boys in the Hood came out the year after that. And then there was like a lot of like so-called hood movies that came out like in the space of the next two or three years. There's like South Central, Menace to Society, Poetic Justice with Janet Jackson and Tupac. And like City of Quartz is largely about that topic and people were growing interested in that topic. Um, and then also, I think, you know, a little bit later, you start to see a revival in L.A. noir. Like if you think about a lot of the movies that in the late 19, the mid to late 1990s and maybe a little bit in the early 2000s, it's all like <clears throat> L.A. Confidential, yep. Heat, Mulholland Drive, Training Day, which sort of is like a combination between the first one and the first genre and the second genre, even like Pulp Fiction and even like American History X and The Big Lebowski. There's a lot of like LA, like things in LA are not as they seem was like the genre and the, mm -hmm. the vibe that people were interested in. And he was kind of at the beginning, like people were growing interested in that and he was right at the beginning of that curve. And so people who were not socialists, they were not interested in, you know, the history of like class struggle in Southern California, picked up this book because I think it was like tapping into a broad interest, a growing interest in the sort of like grit beneath the glitter of LA. Um, and so it became a smash hit, which I'm sure surprised him as much as anybody else, right? It came out on verso you know uh, left press it wasn't a mainstream press and as i say in the piece it, it was came out in 1990 like the height of this sort of like end of history you know mania you know reaganism had uh, you know reagan was out of office but reaganism was still very much with us and you know it was coming just before bill clinton and all of that kind of go-go 90s optimism you know the good times are, are rolling and they're never going to end and Mike Davis is arguing the exact opposite in City of Courts, which you're like, how, how did this happen? How did this become this smash hit? And I think it's a testament to just the incredible originality of the book. And this it's just like, like people should read it. If you don't care at all about Southern California, you should still read this book to be like, a human being can do this with a book. Like a human being can bring together all of these disparate strands and like weave them into this coherent narrative uh, about anything <laughs> you're like wow I, he, it's that's a that's a cool human that can pull that off um i i forgot to mention this in the piece itself but i just looked it up uh as a testament to like how this book became a, a smash hit i mean i talk about how like he got all these awards he got a genius grant he had all these like hollywood screenwriters calling him up you know he's got the university teaching gigs he's like a clear breakthrough there's a new york times magazine profile uh, from around this time of uh, Bruce Willis 
And uh, there's a scene described in this piece, Bruce Willis Moonlights, uh, that includes the sentence uh, describing a, a trailer that Willis is living in during the filming of one of his movies. And it says, There's a paper shredder and video cassettes of all the episodes of Ken Burns' baseball series, plus a few sober books, among them Mike Davis's study of contemporary Los Angeles, City of Courts. This is so perfect. Wow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So how we've gone from, you know, Mike Davis, the SDS uh, organizer, Mike Davis, the lone guy voting against killing a scab during a strike, to Mike Davis having his book sitting in Bruce Willis's trailer during the filming of the movie. Like, this is a real marker of, like, how he he smashed through into the mainstream at this time. Clearly, people were hitting him up to be, like, they wanted him to be the resident intellectual who could advise them on the dark underbelly of Los Angeles. And instead of doing that, which he would have made a ton of money, if you think about it, he could have really made a lot of money. Because especially in Hollywood, people are always looking for, like, whisper like people who can help explain complex concepts to them. Um, And he could have made like, honestly, a killing being that being that guy, but for LA, which is the city that a lot of people who make movies in LA want to make movies about. And instead, what he did is he went on to advise young gang members and how to strike truces with each other. Can you explain that, that part of his career? Yeah, so I was going to talk about this when you asked why I wanted to write a piece about this guy, because this is one of the things that is so compelling to me about him. He has this breakthrough. He is like one of the intellectual stars in America at this point. His book comes out right before the Rodney King riots, and it's seen as prophesying that this was going to happen. It's just in its description of this sort of pressure cooker environment of Los Angeles in that period. And... Um, I mean, every writer wants their ideas to break through, right? And like get, you know, get a big audience. If you think you've got something to say, you you want people to hear what you have to say. And uh, he probably wasn't expecting to break through, but he does. And the thing that you would do as a writer is like, okay, well, I'm the guy who predicted the, the L.A. riots. So now I'm going to write about the riots. And he did have a book contract at one point about the L.A. riots, Um and, you know, as, as we mentioned, all these people are calling him up. He's getting the Genius Grant. Um, you, you're, like, set for life after you've accomplished that, right? Like, you can just sort of, like, live off of that. People, intellectuals do this all the time, right? Like, people have a, a brilliant piece of work, and then they just coast on it for decades. And uh, he, he started work on this post-LA Riots book, uh, and he says, uh, I, I believe in the Shats profile, that he just couldn't, he couldn't stomach it precisely because of what you just said, Megan, that he becomes extremely close to gang members uh, and their families. And he's, he's like genuinely moved by, uh, by, by that experience. And uh, he's becoming a close advisor to them as they're trying to negotiate truces and putting forward these social democratic solutions to uh, the problems of uh, uh, black urban Los Angeles. Uh, and, you know, is talking about things like, you know, we need money for jobs rather than cops, which is something that obviously is something we, we, we're talking about a lot uh, right now. So he, you know, it, it's like uh, eight years between his uh, between City of Courts and his next book. He does not jump on this opportunity uh, to seize on his newfound fame. And in fact, uh, his next book, Ecology of Fear, is the, is precisely the opposite of what you would do if you were trying to be a good careerist and sort of cash in on your newfound fame. I mean, like, he, he's still writing about Southern California, but he's completely shifted to talk about the ecology of the region 
in a way that is is just like very much explicitly rejecting the thing you would have assumed that he would have and should have done. I'm sure his agent or whatever was like tearing out their hair. Like, Mike, what do you do? We're le- Mike, baby, we're leaving money on the table here. <laughs> and like he very much does leave uh, money on the table and in- instead goes and pursues these other uh, interests that he has that are that are for the like ecology of fear is is the first time where this other um principal interest of his intellectual career really comes to the fore which is his treatment of ecology and the weather as a kind of social change agent of its own i mean Mar- marxists talk about workers as being this key social change agent, obviously, in his first book, he examines the prospects for the working class to to act as a social agent, and he finds the prospects being pretty bleak. And so then by his third book, By Ecology of Fear, he's talking about uh, the weather and the ecology um, as having, like, its own power. It does its own thing, and um, part of why he is opposed to capitalism is that he believes that capitalism cannot... It's not just that capitalism like is stoking things like climate change, which he writes about later. It's that capitalism cannot respect ecology. And he's like, ecology has this sort of raw and awesome power of its own. And we need to just like live in, in recognition of that and respect of that. And capitalism cannot do that. Capitalism is always trying to uh, you know, insert itself into every nook and cranny. He talks a lot about overdevelopment in Southern California, for example, and you know, suburban tract homes incurring into places of wilderness where uh, you know bad things happen when you do this. I mean, everything from like squirrels bearing bubonic plague to like uh, mountain lions like snatching kids from these suburban tract homes to like fires and and uh, tornadoes even and just a whole range of things and it's all part of his insistence that like the weather you cannot fuck with the weather like the weather has its own uh power that you need to respect and in that sense he's he's very different from uh a lot of you know what what we would call now like eco-modernism certainly a lot of what we publish at jacobin where we're sort of like believe in the potential of our human ability to conquer the weather and mike davis thinks that is the height of folly. And I also think that speaking about his career arc, you know, he was writing about ecology and about climate change, but really much, much more than climate change um, at a time when other people weren't doing that. And that worked out really well for him in City of Quartz because he happened to be like, he happened to catch the wave. You can sort of imagine him as like a, a surfer going his own way, just like happens to catch the wave or he doesn't. And in this case, he didn't. I mean, I'm not saying that Ecology of Fear was a flop or anything. It's just like, you know, a few years later, I guess actually maybe like seven or eight years later is when you start to see like Al Gore makes the documentary an inconvenient truth. And like Mike was just like kind of um, offbeat, like he wasn't really in sync, but that was because he was actually ahead of the curve. And then by the time people actually wanted, to, by the time like good liberals wanted to talk about climate change, Mike had moved on to talking about you know the like proliferation of slums around the globe and like mass you know mass starvation in the victorian era and things that were not sort of saleable so that clearly was not a driving motivation for him yes although it's important to say that in much of his writings about 
weather and ecology, he's actually not writing about climate change. And he, he later on, he's, he sort of takes pains to distinguish this. Um, you know, he, he does write about climate change, but but what he's doing in Ecology of Fear is is talking about j- just weather qua weather, like weather doing its thing, even without, you know, uh, humans making it worse by spewing carbon into the air or whatever. He's just saying that, like, th- this already exists and like we we need to be uh, living in respect and awe of it. Um, you know, it, 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 weather on its own, even without the worsening of humans, is its own sort of social change agent. Right. Climate, climate unchanged is all. And, and then he's talking about like human, human sort of development in places where it shouldn't happen. And as somebody who now lives in Southern California, I've, I've definitely had the experience of driving out in Malibu, sort of away from the coast and looking around and being like, these people are tempting fate. Like you really, you really shouldn't, shouldn't live here. And he has, he has a lot of, a lot of stuff about like fires in Malibu, which of course has become very prescient. Um, But actually it reminded me of another piece of writing about Malibu fires that I read when I was younger. Um, Joan Didion has an essay about Malibu fires in her, uh, in her collection, The White Album, because she lived in Malibu for seven years. And it's like totally apocalyptic. She's sort of, um, she she has these depictions of like um like horses catching on fire on the beach and being shot while they're flaming on the beach and like birds exploding in the air but sort of the in classic Joan Didion style she's just like isn't this horrific and also kind of poetic and then there's sort of like an elegant shrug and then you sort of move on (laughs) and and then with Mike Davis he's like yes it's completely horrific and and this is indeed happening in Malibu but also like let's look under the hood let's look at the actual like political economy of why this happens right and that's one of the geniuses of Mike Davis is his willingness to take something sort of iconic and actually really like peel back the surface and and look at the way that the wires are connected underneath yes and in that section that's the most famous chapter from the book the case for letting Malibu burn uh, from ecology of fear Mike Davis's book and uh, in that book, like he does many other times in Ecology of Fear, uh, when he writes about pandemics, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute, and everything he, he, he when he's writing about the weather uh, or ecology, he, he doesn't like skimp on the science. I mean, it, it's a reflection of how much he respects this force. I mean, he's he like goes into why it is that Malibu has uh, what may be the, uh, he says, the, it's the wildfire capital of North America and possibly the world. Uh, he goes into how that comes to be everything from the the, the uh, you know the tinder that gets created because of its natural ecology to the wind that go through the uh, I believe the Santa Monica's um, that that create this like uh, this 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 ecology that sets itself on fire all the time and it was in that uh, chapter it was both in ecology of fear and specifically in that chapter that I realized something about Davis that w- what I was just talking about that th- he describes the ecology of Southern California as having uh, a revolutionary not a reformist landscape uh, and so it's like he sees his own politics in the weather of Southern California the ecology of Southern California and having found the other social change agent not able to accomplish what he wants it to accomplish which is you know overthrow capitalism and, and establish a decent and dignified democratic society. Uh, so then he's looking at the weather and he's like, okay, well, maybe the weather. And in that Malibu chapter, I, it's like he's talking about rich people living in Malibu, you know, extremely wealthy people, you know, movie stars and movie executives and stuff. 
uh, and the this, these fires are constantly sweeping through their their place of residence and kind of clear who he's rooting for there. I mean, he wants the fire to win. Like the workers aren't able to pry the the you know the ill-gotten gains out of the grubby little hands of these movie uh, executives. So whatever, maybe the fire can do it. And this, in fact, is why that chapter then becomes provokes an incredible backlash, right? Like Davis at the time is like all of a sudden the power elite of Los Angeles hate him and he's vilified as if he was actively cheering on the fires and people are really horrified. And I think this speaks to, again, sort of a prescience in Davis's work, right, where he's ahead of the curve on understanding the limits, right? And it actually provokes outrage um, in the same way that often pointing out things that are just facts can provoke outrage from people because it seems like an endorsement of what's happening. I kind of love that because it's the moment when when those people realize that actually he's he's not on their team. Because when City of Quartz came out, I think that it was just really common for like artists, creative intele- intellectuals, like people who are like hip and in the know would like have a copy of City of Quartz in Los. If you lived in Los Angeles and you like had disposable income, you had a copy of City of Quartz that you may not have even read. Like I think it was just kind of a hip artifact, and that was the moment when people realized that he was absolutely not on their side yes but it, i didn't really go down this road because you could actually write a whole article about this uh, and in fact john wiener did in the nation at one point mike his starting with city of courts he really like did establish a cottage industry of anti mike davis ism uh from especially like southern california booster types especially in like real estate uh, you know, the, these capitalists did see Mike Davis as a threat because his books were really taking hold. And like, you know, it, it, both because it was the the era of, you know, the 80s and 90s and the, and the sort of go-go-ism of, of you know, unstoppable uh, optimism. And especially because it's Southern California, which is like kind of the home for that, right? You know, it's constantly sunny and beautiful people and everything is great. Uh, and he's he's like, you know, the hair on fire prophet saying, no, this is not what's going on here. I mean, industries like real estate saw that as a real threat to them. And so there became this whole cottage industry of trying to take down Mike Davis and introduce, you know, sense of a sense of doubt about his uh, about his uh, scholarship uh, at, at, because it was like a threat to, to Southern California capitalists, which is kind of an insane thing to think about. May we all be so lucky to establish a, a cottage industry to oppose us. Okay, so then, so at this point, Mike is moving to write about ecology. Um, He's sort of recognizing other limits on human possibility, right? One is coming from the weather. He's then he writes a book about at pandemics. I think we should move to that because again, it's it's why Mike has had this over the past year, sort of like a renaissance. um, In addition to the fact that he has these new books out, I mean, I think it's the writing on pandemics that really. puts him once again in the sort of seat of profit. Yes. I mean, we can't talk about everything that in his career. We, we probably don't have time to talk about late Victorian Holocaust, an incredible book, one of the most brutal and brutally depressing books I've ever read. Um, but uh, yes, he does write about, uh, in 2005, a book, uh, The Monster at Our Door, and it's about the avian flu. And when I first heard about this book, I remember holding it in my hands in a leftist bookstore and I found it and it's like got this like very imposing picture of like a chicken on it and 
I, I'm just like, what? What is this? This seems like okay. Like, I, has I, Mike has Mike gone off the? No, defense? exactly. I'm like, <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> this was this was years ago, and I was like, seems like this guy kind of lost it at this point. Like he's going kind of nuts at this point. He's lost faith in the agency of the working class, and he's now <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, he's, he looks to the fire. He's looking to the chickens. Um, so I, I was just like, this, this guy, I, I was like, I'm never going to read this book because this just seems too wacky for me. Um, but <laughs> unfortunately, 15 years later, we uh, joke's on us. Uh, he writes in the intro to this re-released version of this book, which is now called The Monster Enters COVID-19 and the Plagues of Capitalism. And he says that he actually had to buy a copy of the book for himself when the COVID-19 pandemic kicked off because he didn't like keeping it around the house. Like it just made him, it, it made him feel real bad uh, because he had like dug into the actual science of uh, global pandemics and the possibility for such things to uh, kick off in, in the 21st century. And he was really freaked out by it. And so he like didn't want a reminder of the monster being at our door uh, to be sitting next to him. So he actually had to go buy his own copy of his own book uh, when, when it turned out to unfortunately be quite prescient. And, you know, I mean, he, he, would, he would say, if you asked him about it, he would downplay his clairvoyance like he often does. He would say, well, all I was doing was reading what scientists were actually saying about global pandemics. And I put it in the book. I, I learned what they were saying and I wrote it down. So it's not just Mike Davis uh, you know, saying this stuff. It's that Mike Davis was the one who was actually listening to what scientists were saying. Um, but, you know, clearly to insist uh, to your publisher, to a mainstream publisher, that like, no, this really matters. This is actually a serious issue. And to, to, to see the thing through to get it published. And, and to, as always, to like really work through the real science of what uh, these pathogens look like, how they mutate, what what conditions they thrive in. And of course, most importantly for his purposes as a socialist, how capitalism uh, and, and the way that we do like food production, for example, uh, helps lead to these kinds of uh, pandemics. So, uh, yeah, he was uh, very unfortunately proven correct in talking about how uh, devastating uh, such a potential pandemic uh, would be. And he, you know, he writes about, uh, he quotes scientists saying stuff like, if a pandemic, this is 2003, remember, if a pandemic happened today, Hospital facilities would be overwhelmed and understaffed because many medical personnel would be afflicted with the disease. Vaccine production would be slow. Critical community services would be immobilized. Reserves of existing vaccines and medical equipment would be quickly depleted, leaving most people vulnerable to infection. Uh, Obviously, this is what has happened uh, in the world now. So uh, another just, uh, you know, he's willing to go to these very dark and very depressing places and he writes a whole book about him and people like me you know whatever three five seven years ago are looking at this and they're like kind of what's what's going on with this mike davis guy but uh unfortunately he yet again turns out to be correct yeah i have another stray observation on this point which is like so i have this theory that the fact that the cold war never resulted in you know like a nuclear like strike on the united states actually had a kind of weird fortifying effect on boomers on their imagination and their belief in sort of like 
safety and American, you know, um, the, the permanence of American hegemony. Um, and, and I think that the sort of near misses of the early pandemic scares of the 21st century had a similar effect, which is that it kind of made people, there were, there were like two almost pandemics that people that happened and that everyone was freaked out about. And then it turned out that they were actually fine ish, like well, not as bad as people had predicted. And so therefore it kind of like put people's minds at ease. And, but with Mike Davis, you can, it's almost, I also think there's something similar with like Y2K, for example, like really formative for like millennials, actually, like the world is going to end and then it doesn't end. And then you're like, Oh, actually everything is fine with like right. technology and like digital technology, <laughs> just like colonizing our lives. Like it's yeah. not going to result in like the apocalypse. Right. That's like a formative experience for like me as a 12 year old thinking that like, actually like um, digital technology is the end of us all. And then it's totally fine. So you see my point, right. Is like my, Mike Davis, actually it doesn't allow himself to be reassured by near misses if anything he sees them as like eventually we're not it's not going to miss like the asteroid is not going to miss earth right which is a different frame it's a, it's a much more pessimistic i mean it's a more realistic actually if you just look at the probability of various accidents and disasters happening but i think it, it cuts against the typical psychology of, of the average person which is like phew i guess that thing isn't as big of a threat as we thought one thing just building off megan's point i mean something that i find really has always been compelling about davis is that he cuts against not just what you're talking about, but the particularly American perspective that is that, you know, where you've never had the war come home. You've never had, you know, the United States is so unique in this way. It's not just about generational things, but actually about people in the United States and the sense of, you know, being immune, um, not just in the sense of pathogens, but in the sense of any kind of world history, um, that anything that happens is happening outside of the borders, right? And I think Mike, to his credit, you know, he doesn't just gesture at internationalism or something, but actually you see this in his writing, whether it's late Victorian Holocaust or whatever, that he actually is thinking on a global scale. And if that's what you're operating at, that's why you start noticing the weather. And it's also how you start noticing the inevitability of um, being vulnerable to all sorts of things that you might not recognize if you just thought about Southern California. That's a great point, Alex, because so yeah, I th you're, you're totally right about, you know, the, the war never comes home uh, in America in the way that it does elsewhere. Uh, but the weather is the one thing where the, you know, the, the weather is home. <laughs> the weather is here. The weather is uh, this incredibly destructive force that does, you know, rip through uh, the country uh, on, a, on a regular basis. And there's sort of nothing we can do uh, about that basic fact. I mean, of course, you know, we're not dealing with, because we're a wealthy country, we don't, experience the, the violent weather in the same way that you would in you know jakarta or wherever but um but but it is this this one thing where we sort of can't avoid uh, the the raw and terrifying reality of the forces that shape our world uh and and maybe that's why he he zoomed in on it also megan is i just i hadn't thought about this for a while but you mentioned asteroids just now and i did not pursue this at all in my piece i didn't read any of these pieces but in the chat's profile uh he does mention that at one point mike davis was writing about like asteroids for the new left review and the possibility that they were going to slam into the earth and okay well that scares <laughs> that that terrifies me because the man has like a really good batting average like i, I really no. feel like we should be frightened by his focus on asteroids so micah um at this point i feel like 
you know, however many minutes into this uh, podcast we are, we need to get to the two books that actually were the cause for this essay, which is um, Old Gods, New Enigmas, and then um, Set the Night on Fire, right? Um, and I have some questions about sort of your assessments of these, um, but to start, just, you know, what what are these two books? How are they sort of working in concert, and why are they coming out now? Yeah, I guess before I talk about them, just very briefly, because we can't get to all the greatest hits, uh, you know, I also read for this piece, Planet of Slums, which is a mind-blowing book. Um, also, uh, didn't even make it into my piece, uh, his history of the car bomb, Buddha's Wagon, which is an, another incredibly original uh, book that there's a ton that can be said of. Uh, but I, I, it, people who have asked me what they should be reading of his uh, like what's the, what's the first place to go? I, I think that um, Planet of Slums might be the the best uh, sort of intro to, to Mike Davis, the most readable, uh, the shortest and most readable version. But yeah, so um, th- this is the the background for every you know this is Mike Davis's career up to this point. So it's like one, he's established these two social change agents that he is focusing on: the working class and the weather. Uh, he is not offering any kind of cheap hope and no false optimism. You know, Mike Davis is staring reality in the face and the reality is bleak and he's not afraid to tell you that it's bleak. He's not going to sugarcoat things for you. Um, and anybody who knows any of those old Mike Davis books has, knows that because despite how different they all are from each other, you never walk away from a Mike Davis book feeling rosy about the state of the world you feel like you've just been uh the i think there's a blurb on the front of planet of slums that describes reading it as like being hit with uh, anvil blows uh which is an accurate description of how i felt after reading like every single one of these books and so that makes these two most recent books of his astonishing to read because you're, you're like this guy is not offering up any kind of cheap hope, any false optimism. And yet, in these two books, that sense of hope and optimism is palpable. It's still very, you know, it's qualified and he's got plenty to say about what's wrong with what's happening in the world and what's wrong with the development of, you know, this new left or whatever. But but reading them both, I felt very clearly that this is a guy who's been... Who's, who's had his overall outlook on the world changed by the developments of the last five years. The Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 and the rebirth of the American Socialist Movement. Um, he doesn't write about it much that I'm aware of, but you know things like the teacher strike wave. I mean, things are happening in the world that are not just isolated incidents that, that you know leftists like us are desperate to cling on to to have any smidgen of optimism he you know as somebody who has examined reality ruthlessly and politics ruthlessly for decades at this point he is seeing these new developments and he thinks that they are a qualitative shift in how we should be assessing what's going on in the world i i have a question about this um so you quote from prisoners in the american of the american dream in your piece and i'm just going to read this quote he writes In spite of the periodic intensity of the economic class struggle and the episodic appearance of, quote, new lefts in every generation since the Civil War, the rule of capital has remained more powerfully installed and less politically contested than in any other advanced capitalist social formation. Now, I think you're smiling as I read this because this sort of, I I get a sense sometimes that I kind of differ from some of 
my coworkers on a sense of optimism and whether the past five years has actually been as qualitative a shift. How is this different than every other new period of new lefts and contestations? Why do you, what's the case for the, the optimism? You know, why doesn't he see this as just another example of this? Well, the quote that you read from, again, should be remembered that it was written or published in 1986. And Mike Davis's mood is clearly, you know, he, he's the man is not an island. His mood reflects what the material conditions in society are. And, you know, it turned out to be right to be really <laughs> doom and gloom about uh, the prospects for the American working class. Um, but... Okay, so in that quote, he's talking about these periodic new lefts that pop up. And, and obviously, the most recent one was of the 60s. Uh, and he's like still be very bearish on the, the prospects of that movement in the 60s. Set the Night on Fire is this history of L.A. in the 60s. And you read it, and you know, you, the, the, most of the, the struggles that are being described are struggles that were defeated. And they even say this in him and John Wiener, the co-author, uh, say this in interviews. Uh, I think they even say it a couple times in the book. But if you're reading the book, that would not be your take-home point. You're, you're, you would be inspired by the, the incredible upsurges that uh, black people and uh, Chicanos and students and uh, you know the wide range of characters that were involved in the upsurges of the 1960s you're, you're left just feeling totally inspired by what they uh, what they were able to accomplish and, and the fact that they you know really threw themselves against uh, the machinery of racism and war in that era and again it, there's not there's not a, a false hope there is not a cheap hope in what they're doing they say over and over that, they, that these were these movements were defeated, but like they saw it as a kind of planting of seeds, uh, seeds that then would later did sprout. I mean, they mentioned at the end of the book, like the Los Angeles uh, t teacher strike, uh, uh, the recent teacher strike. Uh, they're, they're like the, the seeds that were planted in L.A. in the 1960s have, have sprouted in some ways and what's happening now. So, um, I mean, time will tell, of course, like whether or not this is just another one of those you know new lefts that pops up occasionally because the conditions of american capitalism are so bad the contradictions are are so heightened um but if anybody has a good track record on you know separating the wheat from the chaff in terms of saying like this is don't be fooled by this you know optimistic thing that's going on things are still bleak and no, actually, this is a substantive change in how we should assess the American political scene. It's Mike Davis. Mm -hmm. Well, I have, a, I have a couple of anecdotes to this effect. One is that, so my partner and I moved to LA last May, and we both um, wanted to read, you know, Mike Davis books uh, during our move. And as we were getting settled in, it was like a cute thing or whatever. And so I read Set the Night on Fire, and she read City of Quartz. And she was like, wow, we just moved to hell. Why did we do this? <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding? LA is great. I want to go like, visit all these landmarks. I want to go see where all this cool stuff happened. Like, I'm learning so much about the rich history of resistance in the city. So that's a testament to the major difference in the tone between these two. And I will say that I think that John Wiener's influence is very much felt. He is just a wonderfully pleasant guy. Another anecdote is that when I was interviewing Mike and John, um, Hannah, my partner, sort of drifted in the back of the Zoom one time and he sort of said hello to her. And then I interviewed him and the next time and he asked after her, how is your partner Hannah doing? You know, he's just a wonderfully pleasant um, dude. And I think that um, he brings a little bit of sunshine to the project. But I also think that 
the, the clearly Mike Davis cho chose to write this book. This was his next next project, and the, there's a market difference between it and City of Quartz. Um, I don't know why you would go to the trouble really of digging up all of these histories if you didn't think that they would be instructive for a new generation. And then on that point, um, I wanted to tell another anecdote. Um, so I, I, in DSA LA, set up um, a Set the Night on Fire sort of event with John and Mike. And um, there's this funny, there's this funny thing that happened um, in the middle of the event, which is that I pointed out that Dorothy Healy, who we talked about at the top of the episode, had actually been um, present for the founding of DSA as well. She had sort of um, left the Communist Party and actually joined DSA. And, um, you know, I thought this would be cool to like connect what he was talking about to like where we were. And instead he sort of blurted out like, yeah, worst mistake she ever made. And it was like kind of like record <laughs> scratch. And I was like, oh, what's he gonna say? This is very awkward. And then he said, and then he explained that because the old DSA was so terrible in his opinion, um, and then he and then, and then he said that because it was a merger of two organizations, DSOC, the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, and NAM, the New America Movement, and the sort of DSOC side of things, which was more the herring tonight, like inside outside strategy in the Democratic Party, was more dominant in that coalition. And then he explained that he feels that the spirit of the New America Movement um, is is which is the other partner in that coalition, slightly slightly more radical, a little more creative, was like rising up in the new DSA. So. It was this perfect moment where I thought he was going to tell us that we were like on a wayward path and our efforts were doomed. And then he turned it around and he was like, and you guys are doing pretty good as far as I'm concerned. And to back this up, I also, when I interviewed him <clears throat> a while back for Jacobin about um, late Victorian holocausts, at the end of the conversation, we were done recording and he actually wanted to stay on the phone with me and ask me what was going on in DSA. And he asked me to send him like internal materials from um, you know, the caucus that I belong to because he was like really curious about what was happening in the organization, which that level of curiosity is, is I think a testament to his like actually renewed interest, his genuine profound interest in what's happening on the left today. I, I don't think that he's super rosy about it. You can listen to, um, you can listen to interviews with him where like, I think he misses the mark on what's so exciting about um, Bernie Sanders, for example. Um, I'm, I don't think that like I, Micah and I, for example, you can tell from our book, Bigger Than Bernie, are much more optimistic about the role that, that Bernie Sanders has played over the last five years. And Mike's not like totally there, you know, maybe uh, he has some, some old habits or maybe, maybe he's correct and maybe we're being overly optimistic, but he definitely is um, following very closely what's happening on the left. And he, he, he thinks he, that's why he decided, I guess, to like go do this project with John Wiener to like dig up some old examples of things that you might want to pay attention to. Yeah, so I want to say two things about this. Um, one is that uh, on the question of Bernie and optimism, he wrote a piece for the New Left Review on, for their new blog sidecar that came out right after the new year that was specifically about his hopes for 2021. And I almost, I was, I was talking to my editor, I was like, well, he's, he's kind of writing about the very thing that is at the center of my argument about him in this piece. Should I insert something about this? And I ended up deciding not to because it was just a blog post and my, my piece is about all of his books. You know, I'm like trying to take, take him at his, the stuff that, that appeared, you know, between two covers. Um, so, uh, but, but he's, he's saying, and he's like very dour about what he has to say for his hopes for 2021. And one of the things that he is uh, arguing for, he's like, um, you know, 
groups like DSA and uh, Bernie, you know, really dropped the ball. They should have been organizing mass protests against uh, Trump's coronavirus response and, you know, how murderous it was. Uh, and they didn't do that and, and were much the worse off for it. And I was like, at first I read it and I was like, is this running counter to my entire uh, thesis? But uh, David Marcus, my editor, pointed out that uh, the very fact that he is denouncing Bernie and the DSA for not having done XYZ is actually indicative of that he believes that Bernie and DSA could have done something worthwhile, right? Like he believes he, he believes enough in what those what those two projects are, the Bernie campaign and, and, and the, the you know the, the ongoing campaigns that Bernie is doing even after his presidential campaign is over, and this newly reborn DSA. He believes enough in both of them to wag his finger at them and say you should have been doing XYZ because that could have changed what ended up happening. Uh, so, you know, that's, that is, that's a kind of pessimism, a kind of bearishness, but it, it's, it's, a, 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 it's rooted in a real belief that like, we don't, the horrors that are befalling us don't just have to, we're not just, uh, you know, objects, we are subjects and we can actually like change the course of, uh, of history if these, these new formations actually, uh, you know, do the right thing. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, um, what what is fascinating to me about Davis, if I ever interviewed him, I would want to ask him about this, is that I found this interview that John Wiener did with him for the journal Radical History Review in 2003. And it was an interview that was about Buddha's Wagon, which came out, I believe, in 2006, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, and... It came out around the time, uh, 2007, excuse me. Uh, and it also came out around the time uh, of City of Quartz, as I mentioned, another like incredibly bleak book. But he's in 2003, his very first question that Wiener asks him is about what became Set the Night on Fire, this history of L.A. in the 60s. And so for at least 17 years, if not longer, Mike Davis has been working on this project about L.A. in the 60s. It, changed and Wiener eventually came on as a co-author of it um but so it's fascinating to me that he was writing all these other extremely bleak books about pandemics about slums about the car bomb uh and yet he had this project going in the background that that took him probably about two decades to finish that was this history of LA in the 60s so it's like this is this sort of core of the guy this 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 insistence that like what happened in the 60s those upsurges matter uh matter enough for him to spend two decades working on a book about them uh and so like despite all the doom and gloom that just that core optimism about the basic ability of human beings to transform the world in a, in a more dignified and democratic direction is still there that's a perfect place to end our conversation today. Thank you, Micah, for coming on your own podcast to talk about your own article. <laughs> Thank you for having me on my own podcast. And if people want to read your essay, it's online now. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> right. I suppose I should continue to plug myself. Yes. Yeah, so uh, the, the piece is available on the nation's website. Uh, it's called Amid the Wildfires, Mike Davis's Forecast for the Left. If you go to the, the nation.com, you can read it. <laughs>